All right, gentlemen, good evening. Good to see you all. Glad to have you here. We're going we're gonna to jump back into uh, 1 Corinthians here where we left off. But as promised in an earlier session, I wanted to give you some quotations from the book of Concord, uh, specifically in regard to this concept that the baptized are very different than the unbaptized. And even amongst the baptized, there's difference and distinction, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, 1. So we'll have a prayer, we'll open up, we'll revisit these things. And, and again, I think it's important to re-emphasize that framework, these truths that have become so in, unpopular and obscured, uh, get them firmly in our minds, because a lot of what Paul's doing in his theology is built upon these premises. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please send your Holy Spirit that we might see in the scriptures the truth of your word and see that truth purely and rightly and be directed to Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we ever be repentant of our sins, acknowledging them, confessing them, and being cleansed by his very real blood poured out for us in the chalice every Sunday, that as we drink, we might be cleansed, forgiven, renewed, and brought back into the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, just glance with me at 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And here you're going to see in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, a distinction between Christians made by Paul. But I, brothers, could not address you as spirituals or spiritual people, but as fleshlies or as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So we already see here spiritual Christians and fleshly Christians infants in Christ and those who are mature. Now, if you're looking for the proof text of mature, you want to go back to chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So even amongst Christians, then you have these kinds of pulls from fleshly to spiritual, from infants to mature. To say nothing of the distinction between those who are not believers and those who are believers. So if you look at 14, you have that distinction. Of course, this whole section I just commend to you. But at verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's the unbeliever, the natural person. The spiritual person, you can see the contrast first in your standard version, at least the first three words of 14 contrasted with the first three words of 15. The natural person versus the spiritual person. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Now, this judged by no one, we're going to pick up on the theme of judgment in 1 Corinthians, which can be a little complicated, but overall not too bad. We'll be picking up on that later today, too. So there is a distinction in Corinthians, then, between unbelievers and believers, then between believers of different kinds. And I want to just read from you some parts of the Book of Concord so that you can see that this is historic Lutheran theology. Now, in this section from which I'm reading... We're talking about the regenerate, those who have received the Holy Spirit. From this evidence, the following is certain. As soon as the Holy Spirit has begun his work of regeneration and renewal in us through the word and holy sacraments, we can and should. Whoops. <laughs> Just came unplugged. Fell right out of my pocket. Okay, sorry about that, guys. For people who are listening to this with the volume all the way up in the car in the future, now looking for a gas station. <laughs> all right. So, once more, from this evidence, the following is certain. As soon as the Holy Spirit has begun his work of regeneration and renewal in us 
through the word and holy sacraments, we can and should cooperate through his power, although still in great weakness. This cooperation does not come from our fleshly natural powers, but from the new powers and gifts that the Holy Spirit has begun in us in conversion. All right, just jumping ahead. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. I commend the whole section to you. This is Article 2 in the uh, Formula of Concord Solid Declaration. I read, there is a great difference between baptized and unbaptized people. According to the teaching of St. Paul in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and are made truly regenerate. They now have a freed will. So in Christ, our will is free, free from bondage to the devil, sin to the devil. So set free in Christ, the difference between being in bondage and being free. Continuing with the reading, as Christ says, they have been made free again, John 8, 36. Therefore, they are able not only to hear the word, but also to agree with it and accept it, although in great weakness. We receive in this life only the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8.23. The new birth is not complete, but only begun in us. The combat and struggle of the flesh against the Spirit remains even in the elect and truly regenerate people. That's going to be important for us to keep in mind. That the new birth is just begun. The combat and struggle of the flesh remains even in the elect and truly regenerate. Next line, for a great difference can be seen among Christians. All right, we see the same then distinction made here by St. Paul. There's a great difference between unbelievers and believers. There's a great difference from one Christian unto another. Continuing on then, not only is it true that one is weak and another is strong in the spirit, but each Christian also experiences differences in himself. How many of you can vouch for that? <laughs> At one time strong and then weak, sometimes in the same day, unfortunately. At one time, he is joyful in spirit. At another, fearful and alarmed. At one time, he is intense in love, strong in faith and hope. And at another time, he is cold and weak. So on and so forth. But you can even think back to the figures in the uh, Old and New Testament alike. Christ's disciples, other personages. Uh, think of King David. He's a commonly used example. Strong one moment, weak at another, etc. But there are then um, these distinctions from the scriptures retained within the Lutheran Church, much lost to us in the 20th and 21st century. Let me read you just uh, maybe one more point here. Two more points. This is certainly true in genuine conversion, a change, new emotion and movement in the intellect, will and heart must take place. The heart must perceive sin, dread God's wrath, turn from sin, see and accept the promise of grace in Christ, have good spiritual thoughts, have a Christian purpose and diligence and fight against the flesh where none of these happen or are present. There is no true conversion, but the question is about the effective cause. Who works this in us? And is it going to be us of our own strength, or is it going to be the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, obviously. All right, one more, just for giggles. In conversion, God changes, so God's doing the converting. God changes stubborn and unwilling people, that to, to borrow from 1 Corinthians natural people from chapter 214 in conversion god changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people through the drawing of the holy spirit so really important line because the will doesn't participate in conversion the will is the thing that is converted god converts the will from being unwilling and contrary to him to being 
willing, and with him. After such conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, a person's regenerate will is not idle, but also cooperates in all the Holy Spirit's works that he does through us. How this happens has already been explained well enough above, etc. So that's part of the freedom we have then in Christ, is this cooperation. Whereas before we were merely opposed, now the will has been converted by God, and we cooperate with him in active daily repentance. So one of these lines that really irks me is when people will say, God repents you. It irks me in the first place because nowhere does the scripture speak this way. If you're using repentance in the wide sense, converts you, then yes, indeed, God converts you. But why not just say that? This idea that God repents you leaves one to imagine that you're just sort of sitting on your duff. And, you know, as maybe my son is on a Saturday and I say, hey, why don't you get up and help me take out the trash? And he's like, well. I've got to wait until the Holy Spirit uh, does this. (laughs) Maybe you're not really Lutheran, Dad, if you think I can cooperate with the Spirit's will. (laughs) And so on and so forth. This is the nonsense we've had to put up with now for too long in the church. All right. I wanted to share that with you. And it's going to be important then as you see these divisions between believers and unbelievers and this sort of stark line as we go into uh, Paul's argument into chapters uh, four and then five especially. Okay, as we kind of get back into the argument of 1 Corinthians, the first pastoral circumstance that he's addressing is this boasting that's happening in Corinth where they're all boasting of their own superiority, one against the other, and they're claiming for themselves these teachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. But Paul is seeing them being puffed up, arrogant, um, thus sectarian, fracturing, not all one body, but this sort of superiority complex, this boasting. So certainly then a high point comes in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul really hits home his point. So let no one boast in men which is what they're doing because men of themselves are fools and weak and God in his foolishness and in his weakness is more wise and more powerful. Then it, then we got a little ways into four, I believe. So let's pick up at four one. This is how one should regard us. The us here are the apostles as is going to become more clear if you wanted to put a real fine point on it, I suppose you could say Paul and Apollos, but by extension, it's all the apostles. So either way, you get the same end. This is how one should regard us as servants who peritas, which is under oarsmen of Christ. Servants of Christ um, is a little generic. Who uh, peritas, under oarsmen of Christ. It's beautiful because then you have the, you know, the boat is the church, the Beautiful imagery there. And stewards, um, oikonomois, how, uh, masters of the house, you know, serving under the, the master, the capital M master, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required. Did we do enough on mysteries? Does everyone feel like they grasp that? The idea of a biblical mystery is something that's very clear and very straightforward, but it's inexhaustible. And at time, that's that's maybe one aspect of what a biblical mystery is. It's something that's inexhaustible, not fully knowable. Another element of the mysteries of God is very frequently, once you understand the given mystery itself well enough, you're going to see how it how reason ultimately has to give way to faith. Reason is not a sufficient instrument to grasp the fullness of the mystery. And God designs the mysteries in just this way, so that if you try to approach via reason and that magisterial use of reason by which we would sit in judgment of God and his word, you're not going to get there. You're going to end up choosing one side or the other and negating the scriptures on one side or the other. Okay, so can do more on mysteries if you're interested, but that's um, articles of the faith. 
is a clunkier way of saying what the mysteries are. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy, faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, plural, or by any human day or any human court. He's using day the same way he's been using the day of the Lord as a judgment. Now, clearly he's saying this as an apostle, but I think we can extrapolate more from that if if we want. And it is an extrapolation. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what's the point then? That we're answerable to the Lord. Paul's saying, look, I've... I'm not going to sit, I'm not going to, uh, I could care less what judgment you render of me as a servant of God. Because I am a servant of God. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm answerable to him, not to you. And then he says, you know, I examine myself and I don't see anything within myself. That is, I've got a clean conscience, especially a clean conscience towards Corinth. And I've got a clean conscience towards you. Um, But guess what? I'm not exonerated by that either. Because I'm doing the judging. And I'm not my own master. So my judgment once more is in the hands of the Lord. Now, what I mean by an extrapolation here is, and we and we have to be careful with this, no doubt about it, because we don't want to somehow subvert the fourth commandment where God gives uh, the authority of parents and really puts in place hierarchy of father and mother And from this estate flow the estates of the church and the government. So you have these three estates, the estate of family. um, Sometimes we call it the the estate of the church, the right-hand kingdom, and the estate of the civil government, the left-hand kingdom. It's kind of our jargon that's developed. Okay, and we don't want to undermine any of these authorities. So, though, the point that I want to make, and if I can thread the needle here, I will, is that you as a as a man, that's who I'm speaking to in these rooms, have been given by God holy vocations or callings. And to just stick with the biblical categories, you're a, by birth, you're a son. That is a holy vocation or calling. You're a child, you're a son. If God grants it, you're given a wife, you become a husband. If God grants it, you become a father and you participate in your fatherhood out in the world, making a living and protecting your family, etc. You may or may not be called into the right hand kingdom, the estate of the church. You may or may not be called into the left hand kingdom, the estate of the state. But those are broad contours of the shapes of holy vocation. Now, who is it that called you into this role? No man. So are you answerable to any man? Strictly speaking, no. You're answerable to the Lord who alone judges you within these holy vocations, these holy estates. Now, that is in no way to subvert the state who might say, hey, This is what's moral and right, and it's actually an agreement with God's natural law. You don't get to claim, but but, uh, sorry, only God can judge me. (laughs) God is judging you through the instrument of the state. Likewise, in the church, you can't say, you know, you can't say, well, only God can judge me. I'll teach my family whatever I want to teach. And then the church comes and says, hey, you're in error. And, oh, only God can judge me. It's not the point that you would subvert the means and the authority that God has put in place in the in the church either but say for example that you're within the bounds of the state the natural law is what i really mean here because that's when the state is properly doing its work it's doing the natural law nothing more nothing less when you're within the bounds of the church the holy scriptures don't let anyone judge you especially not your wife (laughs) it's not her role it's not her responsibility You've been given the headship. You've been given the authority. Don't let other people judge you. 
Let God's word, let the natural law be your guide. If you're clear there, say with Paul, it's a small thing that I'd be judged by you. I could care less, frankly. I don't see anything against myself, but even then I'm not exonerated. I'll commend this into the hands of the Lord. So we're admitting and acknowledging that our service is unto him, that his judgment is the is the most important judgment. And that's what we live for. But that provides us some blessed, wonderful, beautiful freedom and dignity, which the world will not afford men. The world will afford men in positions of authority, which if you are a man, you have certain authority, even if only over yourself. The world will allow you none of that. And we'll tell you that having any sense of self-worth or self-dignity or vocatio somehow makes you part of the oppressive patriarchy. Throw all that stuff out. That's the devil. It reeks of sulfur. And you need to be able to stand firm as St. Paul does here as, as an apostle. I understand it's a different degree. It's a different category. But to extrapolate from that, I think we all can say we have these holy vocations and we're accountable to God in them. There's a beautiful sense of freedom and dignity in that. So hopefully I've communicated that correctly. Hopefully I've threaded that needle. It's a really important thing for us to grasp and and grasp the the authority that God has given to us and that we can commend, um, you know, look, you want to have a clean conscience. And once you have a clean conscience, you say, but I'm kind of a biased judge anyway, so (laughs) that got that working against me. So how about if I just commend it into the hands of the Lord? And when the Lord returns, I mean, this is the beauty. It's like it's like why we why Paul's going to say, let a man examine himself before he approaches the Lord's Supper. Same impulse for why we go to confession. It's all going before the Lord in reality, present tense, but it's preparation for that final judgment. When we stand before him and he does give that final verdict, what's it going to be like? Well, if we've examined ourselves before we see him in Holy Communion, if we've prepared ourselves and confessed our sins before holy absolution. It's just sort of like the Super Bowl of that. (laughs) There it is, Lord. You know who I am. You know my shortcomings. I know them too. And I also know myself well enough to know um, that I have faults hidden even unto myself. Secret faults, as the psalmist says. So before you, I plead guilty of all sins. Have mercy on me and forgive me. And indeed he will. Indeed he does. The judgment isn't, Christ isn't going to be some different Christ or say some different thing than what he says to you after your confession, when he absolves you through the pastor, or after your self-examination and you go to the communion rail and he says for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Same Jesus, same message. It's not like he's going to be like, oh yeah, I forgave you all those times, but now this is the last one. I guess I'm going to pull a switcheroo. I mean, that's the kind of devil's temptation that you can see in that. So get accustomed to that way of thinking. And then when the devil's trying to tempt you there, you can just know right off the bat, it's the devil, not Christ. Be better spending your time turning on ESPN or something dealing with that. (laughs) Okay. So uh, don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We can zoom back in. But before we do, let me just open it up, see if you have questions, comments, if I can clarify anything. One thing that's coming to my mind is the concept of offering God. I think that was one person who got that we actually the first time I heard this. But what I'm hearing is that we can't do the, the piety that's not that we have to do those things that are in the word and strong. And that's if we do it outside of that, then that's when we can go. Uh, yeah, I, I see your point. I think your point's generally true. Um, in fact, Paul's going to drive us home to this point, not to go beyond what is written. And that's going to be a key part of, of how we render judgment, how he would have the Corinthians render judgment, um, is not apart from the word of God, not going beyond the word of God. That's true. Now, the reality is the application of that word of God or what, or how you implement that word of God within your sphere of authority can be a matter of some discretion, can be a matter of some art rather than science. Okay. And this is where, you know, you are, if you're a father, you're the foundation of your family. You're the head of your family. 
and you're operating with biblical principles in mind, but your circumstances in your household might be very different than my circumstances in my household. And so we might choose to approach things in a different way. We have different personalities, we have different situations, we have different ages of kids, wives with different backgrounds. Okay. So let's not judge one another and let's not really, you know, overly submit ourselves to one another's judgment. That, that can also be a toxic thing. Like, do you think I'm doing the right thing? Do you approve of what I'm doing? We have to regain this dignity and this lordliness that the world and Satan have tried to strip away from us. Am I standing firmly in the word of God? Yes. Then my conscience is clear and I commend the rest into the hands of Jesus. It's a small thing if a group of men would say to me, oh, I would have done it differently. I mean, it's it's worth taking into consideration the counsel of the wise. Don't mishear me here. It's it's worth consulting with Christian brothers and faithful men and pastors. But there's a kind of dignity that God has given you. He's called you to these particular people. He's called you to the headship of this particular family. He's entrusted it to you, not to me, not to other Christian men, not to a group of us, you see. So he's imbued you with this kind of dignity and authority and responsibility. And there's an art, not a science there um, in many aspects, as long as you're in, in keeping with the word of God. And then you, what you want to do is just have a good conscience. If you got a bad conscience, confess it, be forgiven, change it. <laughs> then have a good conscience and commend the whole thing into the hands of God. Christ is going to judge me and we'll see how it shakes out. And no, <laughs> he's better than I am. And he's more objective than I am. And he's more gracious than I am. He's more good than I am. And so I have no problem commending my life and my life's work into his hands. Huh. And if he if he says, Rody, you graded out at about the eleventh percentile. Sorry, friend. <laughs> Be like, well, I had a suspicion it was that bad. <laughs> Surprise is not worse, frankly. Uh, well, God be praised for those other faithful men. And, you know, as in selflessness, we can look and see uh, the wonderful works of other Christians and take pride and pleasure in their glory. So, yeah, all those things are worth considering as we, you know, face the, as we face our vocations in this life and see the dignity that Christ gives us. The devil in the world, this is the soup du jour, this is the spirit of the age, are just trying to attack this stuff left and right. And trying to make us feel weak and insecure and out of place and no dignity and oh heaven forbid you actually acted with authority. I mean, it's, we you should sort of have this mantra in your mind. It's what is it to me if my wife and children should judge me? Is this a democracy? It's not. <laughs> are they are they the judges? Are they the panel? No. Uh, so uh, in those matters, we need to commend ourselves into the hands of the Lord. Now, again, we're, are we called to be uh, lording it over others? Are we called to be tyrants? Are we called to be abusive? No, of course not. Treat our wife with respect and gentleness and all the rest. Um, and and uh, don't exacerbate our children or alienate our children unduly, all the rest. So, But don't be judged by them either. That's a subversion of the ordering of the family. All right, without further ado, then, we'll jump back in. So, again, Paul is saying to them, let no one boast in men. Now, he's going to be, he's going to get more direct with them. In fact, he's going to get bitterly sarcastic with them, because not only are they boasting in other men, but they're effectively boasting in themselves. So that's what we're driving at. Now, even over and against Paul, perhaps. I mean, this is a picture that's kind of unclear, but seems to be in the background. You know, why is Paul saying here, look, it's it's a very small thing that I'd be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And then verse five, the new material. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And I think this is the real point. Then each one will receive his, it's even more blunt in the Greek, praise from God. Okay, so what are they judging? Well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. 
I'm a Cephas. I'm I'm this good. You're that good. I'm a little better. You're a little worse. Okay, they're doing all these judgments, and it's like, wait a minute. Paul's effectively saying, wait a minute. Christ is going to do the judging, and he knows what's on the inside of each and every person's heart. So rather than gaining this sort of premature sense of superiority, put all that on pause and commend it into the hands of the Lord, who will reveal or bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and who will disclose the inner purposes, the hidden purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God or his praise from God. So don't be boasting in yourselves over and against others ahead of time. Humbly submit yourself to the judgment of God. And in the end, after all is disclosed, you will receive, each one will receive his praise from God. Uh, we can easily har- harmonize this with uh, something that Paul says in Romans 8, a beautiful gospel passage. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so here it's not mentioned, well, each one will receive whatever condemnation and whatever praise he has earned or merited. Uh, no, there seems to be no condemnation per se in view here but rather each one will receive his praise or commendation from God, that positive commendation or praise. Yes, sir. Um, I'm seeing a parallel here between um, as far as the the purposes of the heart and the, um, what we talked about back when um, the widow's might because he's looking at her heart, even though she's only giving, you know, two yeah. cents, it's yeah. more than anything that all the other people in their riches have been giving because he's looking at, you know, the heart at that point. It's just a wonderful illustration that you brought up, Gordon. Thank you for that. Of course, these are the dynamics. If If human beings were to judge her offering, what would they say? Not much and certainly less than the others. But how does God judge it? You know, I think that that's where I, you know, this, this is another thing that's worth, that's worth really considering. And I think meditating and taking to heart, um, there's this, there's certainly this move within the scriptures and within the Lutheran tradition to plead guilty before God of all sins, to repent of everything, to to prepare to sort of get like a zero on your score and be saved by grace, okay? But if that's all there is, that can be demoralizing. And that can be equally distorting. We'll see some other places in Paul, hopefully, that counter this attitude. Because this isn't, strictly speaking, Lutheran or scriptural to have that attitude and that attitude only. Paul says... I worked harder than all the others. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. There has to be a kind of reality and a kind of willingness to admit like, look, I'm not actually going to score a zero on this. (laughs) Okay, if I do, that's going to be a surprise too. Uh, Because God has given me certain things to do and because I as a Christian, whatever, whatever degree I'm capable, I'm doing those things. And, you know, this is this is where our Lord Jesus comforts us with the words, too, that um, even if you do something so small and thoughtless as giving a cup of cold water, you're not going to lose your reward. I'm there paying attention and seeing it. And I, I worry that the, the modern Lutheran, Lutheran ethos is like, oh, yes, but when I gave that cup of cold water, I was doing it selfishly and, oh, woe is me and I deserve no reward. Well, that's doing violence to Christ's word, and that's doing violence to, to this beautiful hope that he sets before us. And in doing violence there, I mean, not only are we offending against him, but we're falling into a kind of nihilism and despair and hopelessness and darkness. Uh, there, sh- there has to be a healthy balance between those two things and realizing that, hey, I did a little thing and it didn't get noticed. Christ says, well, so did that widow. And I noticed, and I'm the one that matters. And, oh, I gave the cup of cold water and no one noticed, not even the little kid who summarily chugged it down and went back to the playground, you know. 
Christ says, I noticed, I cared. We have to have that sense within us too that, that our deeds, no matter how small, no matter how imperfectly done, have dignity and have weight and have meaning because Christ himself tells us they do. And he trusts us enough to, to know these things and not fall into some sort of works righteousness, getting puffed up, getting arrogant. Okay, so don't mean to belabor that point. Thank you for the example, Gordon. Um, there has to be this other side too, where without boasting before the Lord, we realize that no, insofar as the Holy Spirit has empowered us, we have done good things. Nothing wrong with that in the least. Okay, so then uh, each one will receive his praise from God. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. So if you remember back from previous weeks, like who is the us? And I said, well, yes, the the, um, apostles in general, but more specifically, Paul and Apollos, since they're the ones locally known to Corinth. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. What things, if you go to 3.6, you'll get a dose of that. Um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth, etc., etc. Okay. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn, here's the key, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Of course, Paul all the way through has been making his argument on the basis of the written scriptures. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Which is what's going on in, because they're puffed up and arrogant, they're thinking they're better than another, etc. This puffing up is not good. Don't judge ahead of the time. Christ is going to divulge all. Everyone will get their just desserts. And in the meantime, don't go beyond what is written in your judgments. That way you won't be puffed up in favor of one against another. And he's going to continue his argument. But one thing I want to point out to you is uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Because this whole idea that like where Paul says, you know, do not pronounce judgment before the chapter four, verse five. Um, we have to see five twelve, where he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you plural are to judge? So don't take this section, especially Chapter 4, verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, as if Paul's telling them they shouldn't judge. Because one chapter later in 5.12, he's telling them, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So how are they to judge? They are to judge by not going beyond what is written. Then they're not judging ahead of time. It's Christ's business. And they're not falling in... um, So they're not judging ahead of time, which is the sectarianism that puffed up, but nor are they failing to judge. And indeed, chapter five is all about their failure to render judgment on this brother who's engaged in the open, impenitent sexual immorality. So on the one hand, they're overjudging. And on the other hand, they're failing to judge. And Paul's got to address both of those errors. And he does so by directing them to the scriptures, to what is written, and urging them to not go beyond that. So this, the importance of this verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, really cannot be overstated. It's the linchpin of Paul's argument, and it's what holds it all together. That we do, in fact, judge in such a way that we don't go beyond what is written. And by binding ourselves to that, then... We see the consequence that none of you may be puffed up. That language comes from blowing or inflating like a a sail on a ship gets puffed up by the wind. There's other examples, but not being puffed up in favor of one against another. All right, here he continues his argument, and this is beautiful. He shifts to the singular in these verses. I know it's not clear in the English. For... Who sees anything different in you? I don't like this translation. Um, 
so I'm going to give you a real wooden one. For who you makes distinct or different? For who is it that makes you distinct or different from another person? That's a better sense. I don't know. I don't know where the ESV gets this sees because it's just not even there. In fact, I mean, adding that almost mitigates against the sense, like as if we're not supposed to see any differences. That's not the point. That's like a 20th century point. It's egalitarian. I see no differences. I see all people the same. Well, that's why we spend all the time in the book of Concord and back in chapter three, people are different. So how do we reckon with that? Well, who is it that makes you different? God, not you. Okay, that's the point. So these are rhetorical questions. Who is it that makes you to differ from another? Next question. What do you have that you did not receive? See how that makes it even clearer? What do you have to boast in that you didn't? Oh, I'm smarter than this person. Well, who gave you your brain? I'm more holy than this person. Well, who gave you your piety? I'm more industrious than this person. Who gave you the energy and opportunity? You see Paul's rhetoric here? And this is all singular. If you then received it, that is, if it was a gift given to you, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast as if it was no gift at all, but you somehow merited this or are this yourself? You see? Great, brilliant. I mean, it's pretty darn cutting, but it's great, brilliant rhetoric here. Now, in eight, he shifts back to the plural, and he does so. Now, this is bitter, bitter sarcasm. Already, uh, a better read would be already satiated you are. Already you all are full. Which, of course, if you know anything about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being full and being content is not where you want to be. That's like bloated and gassy and filled with air, puffed up in that sense. So the worst, the worst spiritual condition a Christian can be is, oh, I'm already full. I already know it all. I'm done. It's like the most, when people, when people say, oh, yeah, I, I read the small catechism back in 1973. I got that. It's like nothing's more demoralizing to a pastor. It's like, I'm talking to someone who doesn't have a clue. And not only do they not have a clue, but their disease is such that it precludes them from ever gaining a clue because they're all puffed up and filled with their own sense of specialness and completeness. So, yeah, this is bitter. Already you have all you want. Already you're satiated. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And I wish that you really did reign. <laughs> then we could come reign with you. So there's the there's the tell. Uh, the, the ESV kind of renders this a little too soft for my taste, but it's fine. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The exclamation point, I think, gives it away. That's good. This is all sarcastic. You know, they obviously don't reign. They reign in their own minds. Paul saying, hey, maybe if you did reign, I'd come sit in the palace with you. And here's why he says that, because in verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, so following all the train of the patriarchs and prophets, last of all, like men sentenced to death. On the death row here. Because we have become a theatron, from which we get theater, a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, which is great because this is just one of these sort of cleanses of our of our minds that angels are these dynamic creatures with their own personalities and their own differing strengths and differing capabilities and differing opinions on things. So I love this um, because we just get this idea like, all angels are autonomous or uh, uh, yeah, just sort of these uh, autonomous robots that are either following Satan or following God. And if you talk to one angel, it's the same as talking to all of them. Uh, that's really dumb. And it's kind of like being like, okay, I went down to earth and talked to a platypus. I know all there is to know about earthly life. So uh, angels and men see the spectacle, the theater of the apostles and they're just their, their jaws drop. What is this that God would 
bring about the new heavens and the new earth, announce the reign of Christ in this way, that they be men sentenced to death. And then 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now, does that mean we act like idiots and put clown noses on and do the mass and all the other ways in which the world has interpreted this and which apostates have interpreted this in our age? Absolutely not. What, do, what does he mean, we are fools for Christ's sake? It goes right back to chapter 1 and 2. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of Christ crucified, that's what we preach. We, um, we preach the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world, to those who are mature. That's what he's talking about. This is, continues to be his uh, sarcastic use. We are fools for Christ's sake. He's not saying I'm an idiot, I'm a bozo, I'm going to dress up like a clown and do the mass. God save us from the 20th century. What a disaster. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Now, does he? It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Hey, here, here's, the, here's the stylus. Why don't you finish this epistle and write it to me since you already know everything? It's great. Just great fun. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. So this is how you attack uh, pride. And by the way, this is how you attack pride in yourself, too, when you see it. Mock yourself. Um, this is all of, the, of Luther's advice, and he stands on the shoulders of others. That When it comes to God and the devils and dealing with them, they're all proud, arrogant spirits. And the way to deal with proud, arrogant spirits is you don't take them seriously, and you do mock them all the time. People get mad at me when I mock tyrants in sermons or Bible classes. It is a small thing that I should be judged by man. <laughs> but furthermore, if they knew the nature of how we are to deal with tyrants who are proud and puffed up and go beyond their office, it's precisely through mockery, public mockery, public scorn, public shame. So Paul dealing, Paul giving us a masterclass here in how to treat the sin of pride, and that is by mockery. It's also why we like people who are self-deprecating, people who can laugh at themselves, people who can make fun of themselves, because it shows that they're not proud. That's why we like it. So if, and if you struggle with pride, I mean, who doesn't from time to time, you want to knock that down by making fun of yourself or by dragging yourself, you know, have this really especially genius moment. Remind yourself of a really especially foolish moment, right back down to size. So good medicine here. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're in the middle of verse 10. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And here, here he kind of pivots a bit. To the present hour, up to this very moment, we hunger and thirst. What a contrast where he says, you're already satiated. To this very moment, we hunger and thirst. We are uh, poorly dressed, nearly naked or something. Might be a slightly closer translation. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless I really don't like. As if St. Paul is saying we're the guy that sits under the bridge smoking crack. That is not what he's saying. Uh, the word is unsettled or vagabonds. We're constantly traversing around. We have no, this is, I think, exactly what Jesus means when he says um, that he has, the son of man has no place to lay his head. This gets translated to like Jesus is the guy who smells of hemp sitting on the corner of, you know, PCH. That is not what he is or what's going on. Okay. He's, he's saying, I've got, I haven't come into this world to set up a palace and a home and a, and a base and a place from which, like, I am moving about, I am traveling, I am preaching the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're unsettled, we're vagabonds, we're travelers. Um, that's the point. We're, we don't sit down in comfort somewhere. All right, verse 12, and we labor. See, again, I think Paul would be accused today of being like, you know, oh, look how works righteous you are. But, but he's just not ashamed of it. And we labor working with our own hands. And sometimes that's in the ministry and sometimes that's outside of the ministry. At times, Paul takes his full wages from uh, preaching the word. At times where that's not possible, he reverts back to working as a tent maker. Here is a key section because Paul's going to return to it. When we revi when reviled, we bless. 
When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And so here is, um, again, you could just place Christ right here also, couldn't you? Especially on display in his own passion and death as a model for St. Paul and the apostles. When reviled, bless. When persecuted, endure. When slandered, entreat. We have become and are still uh, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And scum of the world, refuse, both kind of mean the same thing here. It's like the stuff that comes off your pan or it's the stuff you want off your porch. It's the stuff that's to be removed. So he's saying, look, the we as apostles have become like the stuff that the world wants to remove. And obviously the principalities and powers of darkness want that especially. So the church is called not to be friends with the world, not to look like the world, not to become the world and hope that we, I mean, isn't that ironic? We're going to become like the world in hopes that we'd win the world to the church. No, friend, you just you just wrapped your own mind around itself. You just converted to the world. So friendship with the world is enmity with God. And insofar as the church is being church and the church is being faithful, we're going to stand out as light in the midst of darkness, as salt in the midst of tastelessness and the world is going to hate us for it jesus great sermon on anti-winsomeness you know look if they persecuted the master who i am do you think you're greater than me do you think the servant is greater than the master do you think that if i couldn't find some way to preach and proclaim this in such a way that i end up on a going on a cross it's going to go any different for you so that puts an end to that. Be faithful and let the chips fall. And the world will hate us. We got to get over that. We got to get thick skin and get over that. Our whole church body, every church body in America, all the mainline church bodies, they got to get over that. They probably won't, though, so we have to be prepared for plan B. They think that they can save themselves by capitulating. Which if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that that's the fastest way to bring the wrath of God upon you. <laughs> Which numerically is already happening. The churches that capitulate the hardest are losing the most members and are also just continue down that slippery slope at warp speed. So, you know, I think, I think like to borrow, to borrow a phrase from that TV show, The Office, we should, uh, we should church even harder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're going to be. That's what we're going to be called to do. We should Christ even harder. We should theology even harder. We should church even harder, um, because that's that's oh, it's what we should have been about all the time, but all the more now. All right, fourteen. He pulls back a little. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So even though I mean this is just this has to rank amongst the some of the most bitter sarcasm and scathing rebuke in the New Testament. He says, look, I, my intent is not to leave you in a place of shame. My intent is to admonish you, to correct you as my beloved children. So as a father disciplines his children, sometimes with hard words, sometimes with loud words, it's necessary for their good. For though you have countless uh, guides as fine pedagogues, so um, the pedagogue, the the slave um, assigned to the child to guide the child when the father's out conducting the business of the family. You have countless guides or pedagogues in Christ, obviously an exaggeration, but you got a bunch of pastors and teachers around you. You do not have many fathers. Now, I don't want to overread it here, but it's as if Paul is saying you do have some fathers. And that this, by the way, is the origin of uh, calling pastors father and uh, something that is uh, alive and well in the Reformation to one degree or another as well. So you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, Paul is, is talking about his unique relationship to them as the one who, you know, in our language, planted that church. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. What does that mean? Like father, like son. Yeah. So I became your father through the preaching of the gospel, through the spreading of the seed. I mean, it gets kind of anatomical there. 
Um, I became your father in Christ. He's, you know, he's the true everlasting father, according to Isaiah. Um, but I became a spiritual father unto you and you, my beloved children. And that's why I'm disciplining you. And then I would urge you to be imitators of me like father, like son. And again, that's going to be to put up with all the crap that the world heaps on you, to be sure. But but returning to verse 12, as I stated just a, a bit earlier, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We're humble. Our boast is not in ourselves or in other men. Our boast is in God. Our boast is in Christ alone. I think that's the best shorthand summary I can do of being an imitator of Paul thus far in 1 Corinthians. Okay, 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And I think the study note points out that um, Timothy might even be the one carrying this epistle to them. To remind you of my ways in Christ, and no doubt to embody those ways of St. Paul in Christ as, as an example unto them as well to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul says, look, what I'm giving you is the same I give to all the churches of Christ. These are the, these are the principles, so the shared faith, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All right, 18, some are arrogant. I don't know why arrogant is chosen here. It's the exact same word as puffed up uh, used earlier. <clears throat> Like um, chapter uh, four, verse six, it's the same exact word and will be the same exact word throughout. I don't know why the editor suddenly decided to start saying arrogant, but whatever. Some are puffed up, arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these puffed up people, but their power. For the kingdom or reign of God does not consist in talk or does not consist in mere words, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul saying, look, as an apostle of Christ, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the word to you. But if you won't listen to the word, you're going to see a demonstration of the Lord's power. And you can think of an example of that in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Spirit. They lie to the church. They lie to the apostles. And Peter announces their death sentence, and the Holy Spirit executes them on the spot. So that uh, you know that kind of story has a way of making itself known amongst the churches of God. So when Paul says, do you want me to come to you with a rod? And demonstration of power or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I, the answer is probably pretty clear. Yeah, I know it would be for me. <laughs> All right. So more of that paternal language, that paternal impulse and um, reflect on the nature of the, the pastoral office as a paternal office. Uh, the small or the large catechism says as much in again in the uh, fourth Commandment of the large catechism, <clears throat> Luther talks about having uh, civil fathers who govern us. And that's how we should think about our earthly governors as um, in the left-hand kingdom and the civil state as fathers. That's how they should think of themselves. And then so also in the right-hand kingdom, in the ecclesiastical state, um, those are fathers, the large catechism says. Um, we should think of those as as being our fathers. Okay, so all of that then included under the fourth commandment, not despising authority, and um, that on display here. Okay, I don't know. That's good. That's it. We're at the end anyway. That was good timing. So next week, we're going to talk about how some of their arrogance has manifested itself in an extremely inappropriate way. Um, they are rendering judgment in ways they shouldn't and not rendering judgment in ways they should. So we'll talk about this man who gets excommunicated here in 1 Corinthians 5 next week. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.